You know, uh, when, whenever life transitions you from one stage to another, many, many times it calls for a change of priorities and a change in commitments, right? You know, uh, right after I graduated uni, I lived the best life in the world. I had no school, no job. My parents would give me like 20 bucks a week and so, and free access to their car. And so I, I would just go out any time of day, any time of night, hang out with my friends, and it was absolutely wonderful. $20 in America went a long way back in like 1994, okay? So it was a good life, and that's what I would do. But the moment I got my first full-time job at this laboratory, everything changed. All of a sudden, I couldn't go out late nights anymore because I had to wake up at 5.30 in the morning to get to the laboratory by 6.00. Because that's when, anyway, that's when the work started. And I was like, oh my goodness, this sucks. And so I remember I, I would have to even work weekends and I would have to, I would have to take projects home with me and, I, and I, I'd get so busy and so much that I couldn't hang out with all my other friends who were jobless and schoolless and who didn't have much money. And I soon got called names, you know, party pooper, killjoy, you're not the same anymore, Eddie, what happened to you? And, you know, I just got a job. That's what I have to do, right? Uh, but that's how it is, isn't it? Um, that's what happens, you know. And for some of us, it takes a few days to realize it, a few weeks. Maybe for some of us, still a few years. But the moment that you all of a sudden want to do something else with your life, it calls for a different set of priorities and commitments. I was on the other side of the coin once, too. I, all my friends got married at, like, 25. I, was, I got married really, really late in life. And they were all having kids right when they got married, and so it was really radical. And so I'd be like, dude, let's come out and play golf, man. They're like, I can't. I just had a baby. Dude, the baby won't move. Just leave it there. It can't move. Let's go play golf for like four hours and come back. And the baby will still be there. It's totally safe, right? And that's exactly what I would say. And then that's why I lost a lot of my friends. Or at least their, their wives didn't like me. Anyway, but I didn't understand that until when? Until I got babies myself and I realized, oh, you can't leave a baby for four hours by itself. Okay. Anyway, but that's what happens when life transitions from one phase to the next. It calls for a change of priorities and commitments. So the moment that we call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ, the moment you dedicate yourself to follow, to, to having Jesus Christ now as your King and Lord, that's a huge commitment because the ruler of your life all of a sudden changed. The moment you become a follower of Jesus Christ, it calls us to a radical change in priorities and in commitments. And maybe as a result of this particular camp, you recommitted yourself to Jesus Christ, which is awesome. Maybe you really committed yourself to discovering who Christ is more, which is great. But what does that mean practically for you then? I believe our, well, that's what we're going to talk about today in our passage. It gives us some insight into that. You know, the people in our passage today were a people who were called back to Jerusalem out of slavery. They just witnessed God provide everything for their journey back, right? Protection from all their enemies, enough provisions to rebuild a city, to rebuild the walls. They just witnessed and were part of the biggest revival, maybe in the Old Testament that we see, right? In, in Nehemiah chapter 8. And they saw God do some miraculous work. And all they wanted to do as a result is to give their lives fully to God. That's it. In Nehemiah 8, we saw that, you know, that revival took place. They hungered for God's word and they wanted to hear who God said that they were. In Nehemiah chapter 9, after hearing all that, they repent and completely dedicate themselves to live for him and to be faithful to him. And then at the end of chapter 9, what you see is that they, they take another step. They, they decide to covenant themselves to God. They say, we're going to make a contract with God 
telling him that we're going to be faithful to him till death. And in chapter 10, which is the chapter that we're reading today, we get to see the details of the covenant that they made. And what we see, and as we see their lives transitioning from slavery to being free, to a, from a people that who were lost to a people that are now found, as they are transitioning from being a people that lived under the rule of other nations, now to live solely under the rule of God alone, we see a radical change in their priorities and commitments. And if you find yourself in the same place today after the camp, then wanting now to live under God's rule, what does that mean? How can I do that? How can I make him great in my life? Then there are three commitments that these Israelites made in this chapter that we can make as well that's going to help us to do that. And the first is this. The first of those commitments is to keep your family centered upon God. Um, and before I get to that verse that talks about that, I want to I want you to look at verse 29. This is a really radical verse. Verse 29 says this. It says, it says, all these now join their fellow Israelites and nobles and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to what? To do what? To obey all, carefully, all the commands, regulation, and decrees of the Lord our God. And what you have to realize, what this verse is saying is pretty amazing. It's, 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 a, it's saying they were so serious about following after God. They were so serious that they didn't want to compromise their faith that they asked God not just to have a contract with him, but they said, if we violate this contract, will you please curse us, curse our lives? Because the last thing we want to do is be unfaithful. Isn't that crazy? Would you ever do that? God, I want to live for you. But just in case I don't, curse me. Right? Would you ever have the balls, should I say that? The balls to say that to God? That's huge. But that's what they were doing. Why? Because all they wanted to do was be faithful. They were not spiritual masochists. They were just people who were radically in love. And the last thing they ever wanted to do was disappoint God or to make God you know, unhappy. So they ask God to even curse them. That's radical, isn't it? And so it makes sense that the first commitment that they make is to never marry an unbeliever. That's what they're saying in verse 30. Why? Because life is about the worship of God. Ever since Nehemiah started, that's all we ever talked about. Life is the worship of God. In order, and in order for this new Jewish society to be set up, to be about uh, the worship of God, and to be centered upon God alone, every single person in that community had to share the same faith. You cannot worship alongside somebody who is spiritually dead. And if you, are, if you don't have faith in Christ, the Bible says you are spiritually not alive. You're spiritually dead. I want to say one thing about this particular point, and we'll move to the second point. I said a lot about marriage you know, in a few sermons back. But I just want to kind of review one particular emphasis, and that's this. You know, when God created man, he created man in what? Is his, in his image, in God's image. Icon, we talked about that at the camp, right? And then when God created woman for man, and that's exactly when he created marriage, God created woman in his image, right? God created Eve in his image as well. What's that saying? It's saying that God created human beings in his image, so that we might reflect his image, not only to one another in marriage, but to reflect his image to the world. That's it. And what is his image? It's his character, it's his attributes, it's his values, right? His ways upon this earth. The thing is, sin destroyed that image. They absolutely destroyed that icon, but that's why God sent Jesus Christ to die upon the cross. And through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Jesus restored and redeemed each one of us uh, so that we can now live 
according to that original design and purpose so that we can now reflect his image to one another, so that we can now live out his image upon this earth. And so if you understand that marriage was designed solely to reflect the image of God, not only to one another, but to this world. That's its only purpose. It doesn't, you know, marriage was never created to make us happy or to complete us. It's not even for us, if you truly understand the Genesis passage. It's for God. And this union is so holy in God's eyes that he even says that marriage is to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church. What does that mean? It means that in marriage, we should, if you are a married person, we should continually see and continually experience the gospel of Jesus Christ through that relationship to one another. And not only that, but we should continually experience the worship of God as the result of that union. That's what it's saying, because that was the original design. But not only that, but when it says that we are to reflect his image to the world, that means that everybody who encounters our marriage should also encounter the gospel of Jesus Christ if they hang out with us, me and my wife, or if you guys are married, and they should also encounter the worship of God through your union. That's what it was created for. And that can only happen when both man and women are on the same page and are true worshipers of God. That's the only way God's design for marriage can be fulfilled. Now, what you have to realize here in this particular context, and this is why it's so important, especially for these Jews back then, thousands of years ago, these Jews had every reason to marry outside you know, of their community, right? Is, well, let me say that a bit. They had every reason apart from their faith to marry foreigners, Right? And this is what I mean. You have to realize these guys are slaves. They just came back. What do they have? Are they rich? They're not rich. But the foreigners around them, the foreigners around them have money. They have status. They have connections. They have avenues to a better worldly life. If you just marry a non-Jew, you're set, man. Right? You move into the mansion. You become somebody in society. And you get to live comfortably. You can take care of your family. They had every reason to marry outside of their Jewish community. But what does God say about that? So what? Life is not about those things. The gospel is not about those things. Christ is not about those things. But it's about his worship, and it's about trusting him for all things within our lives. And when we keep him central, not only do we personally remain truly blessed, but we also become blessings to our faith community, right? Not only that, but when the Jews looked to their past, if they were just to read the scriptures, they, re- they would realize the pattern that any time they decided to intermarry with people outside of the faith, that was the beginning of the downfall of their society. And that's why the first commitment that these guys make is not to marry non-believers. And the thing is, that should be for us as well. If you are single, please don't just look for somebody who calls themselves a Christian, but date to find a worshiping spouse. You guys get that? Date to find a worshiping spouse. If you're married, make your marriage about the worship of God. And when we do all that, not only does it strengthen our personal faith, but it strengthens our church as a faith community. If you want more, there I have other I have all these messages about uh, marriage that you can review in the past. The point being, keep your family centered upon God. Number two, the second commitment we are to make is to keep the Sabbath. 
Verse 31 says this, it says, when the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forego working the land and will cancel all debts. Who here is familiar with the Sabbath? This is a bad question to ask Asians because Asians don't raise their hands in class. So sorry, I didn't mean, I just wasted like 30 seconds. Anyway, let me tell you what Sabbath is about. God created Sabbath as a day of rest. It's very simple, right? He created the world in six days. He rested on the seventh. And God wanted his people to do exactly the same. He wanted them to work six days and then to absolutely rest on the seventh. Right? God created Sabbath so that we could rest on the seventh day with who? With God. Okay, that's it. Rest literally means rest. Do nothing. Do you guys know what the word Sabbath means? Anybody? It means to stop. Isn't that interesting? It means to literally stop. So when he said Sabbath, it means stop. Don't do anything, right? But if you think about it, stopping your everything that you do requires a lot of trust. It requires a lot of faith. And let me explain to you why it does, right? You see, for you not to work on Sunday means that while other people are working and making income, you are choosing to forego that income to worship God. You're choosing to forego that seventh day of income in order for you to please God, to obey God, and to follow his word. And what that's saying is very clearly to me and to everyone else is that, hey, I am going to trust God to provide seven days for me even though I only have the income of six. Do you understand? That requires faith. That requires God to provide for you, and it's awesome, right? This verse also says that they're going to forego farming every seventh year in verse 31, right? And that is huge. So what that means is that they're, in the seventh year, they're going to let go of all farming. They're not going to farm whatsoever. They're going to let their land go fallow and hopefully get restored, okay? Now, what that means is that they're not going to have crops for a whole year, which means that there is no food to sell nor eat in that seventh year. Most people would say, that's stupid. That's crazy. But if you really think about it, it's much more crazy than you think. For a farmer not to farm in the seventh year, you know what that means? It means that God doesn't have to provide two years of crops. God actually has to provide three years of crops for these people to stay alive. Well, here we go. In the sixth year, while they're planting, God has to provide food for them to eat. And then in the seventh year, when there's nothing to plant, God has to provide food so that they can eat in the seventh year when there's no plants. And then in the eighth year, when they start to plant, do they have food to start out there? No, they don't. So God has to provide a whole year's worth of food before they can harvest it at the end of that eighth year and sell it or eat it. Do you understand? God has to actually provide three years' worth of food in order for you to practice this Sabbath. Isn't that crazy? But that's, it takes faith to practice the Sabbath. Last year, uh, the last thing it says here, which is probably the hardest, is that they are to forego, on the seventh year, they are to forego any debts, any debts that were owed to them, right? Maybe in the past six years, you lent money pe- to people who needed money because you're a generous Christian, and that's awesome. But that, and you were looking forward to that, you know, to getting that, all that money back. But oh no, the seventh year is coming, and we're supposed to like let go of all of any debts, you know, if anyone owes us any money, we have to cancel those debts. But the thing is, by canceling that debt, what you are doing is that you are declaring that God will take care of you financially better than any return cash ever could. And that's what you are declaring. That takes faith. You know what I'm saying? 
That takes a lot of faith. Observing the Sabbath requires faith. And if you never thought about it, resting is one of the biggest acts of faith that you can practice in life today. Because basically what you're saying to God is you're saying, God, I could be doing all this. I could be enjoying all of that. I could be making all of this. But I choose not to because I love you. And I want, I'd rather have you. And I'd rather be with you, enjoying you and trusting you because you can provide for me and my family better than what I think I can get out of doing these things. Do you understand? This is what it means to Sabbath. It's to trust in him, right? And so Sabbath is the way that God gives us. Sabbath, Sabbath is a gift that God gives us in order to remind us that he is the one that provides for us. He is the one that sustains us. It's not our job. It's not our wealth. It's not our abilities that does. It's him. And so Sabbath is his way of allowing us to reinvest our trust in him. And what that does to us is as we learn to trust him and as we continually see him provide for us within our lives, then all of a sudden every other day that week becomes an exercise in faith as well. That knock-on effect is huge. There's a story I read about this one man. This one man, he challenged another to an all-wood, an all-day wood chopping contest. So this is obviously not in our context here, right? Uh, I read this on the internet. A man challenged another man to an all-day wood chopping contest. And so the challenger, so they, they go, they go at it. And the challenger is working really hard, feverishly, hardly taking a break. But all he does, it's an all-day event, he just takes this really, really short lunch break. But as he observes this other guy that he challenged, the guy, this guy's taking frequent breaks. And he took a really long like, lunch break. So this guy's totally confident that at the end of the day, he would have chopped more wood and that he's going to win. But at the end of the day, this person chopped significantly more wood than him. And so he's like, well, how did that happen? How did you do that? I was looking at you. You're like resting the whole time. And this is what the champion said. He said, you were looking, but you weren't really looking. See, you saw me resting. But you didn't see that while I was resting, all I did was sharpen my axe. If you understand that story, then you understand the purpose of the Sabbath. And if you didn't understand that, I will explain it to you, okay? Uh, whenever we intentionally rest our lives in God, make that intentional, purposeful choice to rest and trust in God, we sharpen our focus upon Christ, we sharpen our trust and our investment in Christ so that we can live much more powerfully all the other six days of the week. That's what Sabbath is there for. You guys understand that? But what does that mean for us practically, Eddie Bang? You know, are we supposed to not work on Sundays? Are we supposed to just go to church all day? And let me try to give you what I think is the most biblical answer that I know of at this point in my life. And the answer is this. Sabbath was not meant to be a set of rules that God wanted you to follow. It is not about doing this or doing that or not doing this and not doing that. The fulfillment of legal duties or the avoidance of certain activities is not the point of Sabbath. If you want to work, work. If you don't want to work, don't work. But it's all about sharpening your focus, your commitment, and your investment, and your enjoyment of Christ so that you can live out the rest of your day or the rest of the week, absolutely trusting in him and enjoying him and in worshiping him. Therefore, the point of the Sabbath is not the rules. The point is to rest 
in Christ and to make sure that he's the one that you're trusting, whether it's for that one day, Saturday or Sunday, whatever you choose, or whether it's that significant portion of each day that you choose to do that. Make sure that he's the one that you're worshiping and enjoying. But Sabbath is an intentional period of time dedicated to enjoying and trusting him. Do you guys get that? Yes? And whether you think that should be a full day, it's up to you. All that stuff is up to you. But what we do know is in Romans 14, which we're not going to read, or Colossians 2, which we're also not going to read, Sabbath is not about following what other people tell you Sabbath is. Okay? But it's about making your Sabbath, your devotion, your dedication, your time with Him to enjoy Him and to resharpen your trust and your focus and your commitment to Christ alone. Right? It's a day to stop and exercise your faith in your worship in order to enjoy him. And God created that for us and commands that for us because we need that. It recenters us every single day upon our purpose, which is to worship and to make everything in our lives a worship to him. And the thing is, and you guys know too, if you don't truly observe Sabbath the way you're supposed to, what ends up happening within our lives? We end up just trusting ourselves and living for ourselves, right? And that's it. And that's what we're trying not to do. So practice a Sabbath. Eddie, I want to grow after this camp. I want God to be central. Then it's absolutely critical that you keep the Sabbath. Every day, every week, however you decide to, it's absolutely critical. Lastly, serve the church. Okay, I'm not going to read the rest of the chapter. But the word you see repeated over and over again is the word obligate. In the NIV, it says uh, something responsibility. Oh, sorry. We will assume responsibility. I don't like that phrase. But if you read the ESV, it says we will obligate ourselves to the church. I like that word, right? We will obligate ourselves to the church. And this is what it's saying, you know. Uh, before, actually, before I get into what it's saying, let me share with you something very interesting about the language of the rest of this chapter. When you read the rest of this chapter, it's, it, you know, they're saying, oh, we're, we're not going to give a tithe of everything, our firstborns, our first, first fruits, our first crops. We're going to dedicate ourselves to building the temple and to serving the people in the temple. There's all these commitments that they make. But what's very interesting is when you study the Hebrew language, it is, what you'll discover is that it's not only a language of obligation or commitment that they write with, but it is written with verbs of desire a language and a tone of desire. The reason why we're going to do that is because this is what we want to do. It's very interesting. But why would they write like that? And here we go. To them, nothing mattered unless the presence of God rocked up in the temple. That's it. To them, faith is not faith. The temple wasn't the temple if it was empty. If the presence of God didn't fill the temple, we didn't have God. And that was everything to them. You see, these Jews, they weren't doing these things because they simply knew that that's what the law says to do. But all they wanted more than anything else was the presence of God to not only fill the temple, but to be with them. That's why they were so generous with their tithing. That's why they were so generous with their sacrifices. That's why they supported every single good work at the temple. They wanted God. Now, this would be a perfect time for me to just, you know, hit you with it. That's why you got to serve the church and give more in tithing. But I'm not going to do that. But let me just say this. I'm going to say one thing, and I'm going to ask you one question. Here's the one thing I want to say. 
The only thing that makes church, church for real is if God rocks up, if God shows up. Do you know what I'm saying? Church is not church if God's not here. You could have the greatest pastor, you could have the greatest leaders, the greatest system, the greatest programs. But if God chooses not to dwell here, I don't know what. It's just the building. In order for church to be church, God's got to be here, right? And if God chooses to rock up to your gathering, it could be in your house or it could be here, that's a great church, you know? So the one question I want to ask you is this. What do you really want more than anything else? I hope that it's the presence of God, not only in your life, but in our lives, right? And if you do, then you got to serve the church. You do, right? you got to give yourself to it. But Eddie, the church is so messed up. It's so messed up, I don't even want to give my tithe to the church. Right? It's so messed up in so many ways. I don't know. Is it messed up? Yes, it is. Every organization that's run by sinners is messed up. But the point isn't about how messed up or more messed up a certain church is than others. The point is the presence of God. And when God finds people who want Him, that's the church that He loves rocking up to. Do you understand? And we prove that by serving the church. And the thing is, when I say serving the church, I don't mean, I don't mean you have to become a leader at FLM or anything. I don't. When, I'm, when I say serve the church, I mean you got to commit yourself to serving the people in our ministry. Right? You don't have to be a leader, but you have to be a servant of others. That's who is greatest in God's eyes. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.16 that the people of God is the new church. Right? And if you want the presence of God to dwell here, if you want the presence of God to be here in FLM every single time we meet, in your CG every single time we meet, maybe you're meeting two or three or gathered in his name, then you have to give yourselves to each other. There's no other way. That's the only way you make God's love complete, by truly loving your brother and sister. And if we do that, then this becomes a ministry where God chooses to dwell Right? The answer is right there. You see? Please, make this church great. And you don't make the church great by being great yourself. You just make the church great by being someone else's servant. You know? And God sees that, and he rocks up. That's what makes us great. You see? Serve each other to make our church great. Keep your family centered upon God. Keep the Sabbath. Serve the church. And if you practice these things, uh, these three things, not only do you give yourself a fighting chance to stay faithful in Christ and grow, but you bless and build each other in our church as well. So let's give ourselves fully to him in these ways. Let's pray. Let's just recommit our lives to living a life of worship, a life of purity, obedience, no more compromise. Maybe before the camp, it was kind of doable. But now, after encountering God, you're like, no. Just like these Jews, let's, let's be radical in our choices, in our commitments, in our priorities. Let's make our family a worship. Keep the Sabbath. Sharpen our faith each day. And let's serve each other. The only way to make Christ's joy complete is by serving and loving others. So let's grow together through these priorities and commitments. 
together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for revealing yourself to us at the camp. And Father, we thank you so much that we were reminded of how much we're loved and we're adored, how much you are for us and how good you truly are. But Lord, all we want to do, just like these Jews many thousand years ago, is live for you and make you great through our lives. So Father, but we need your help for it. God, we need your spirit and your power and your wisdom to truly make you great and central within our, our families, our marriages, our future marriages. God, we pray that you would just anoint us with your spirit so that we can continually trust in you, God, and keep the Sabbath holy. Use it powerfully within our lives, not only so that we can stay centered upon you, but so that our faith might grow exponentially as we practice trusting in you each and every single day. And Father, we pray that you would continue to just move upon our hearts so that we might be a church that only desires you to rock up. Father, you gotta come. You gotta come. And so make us a people that love you so much that we love each other so that you might always be in all of our meetings. Thank you, God, for your love for this ministry. Thank you, God, for your love for us. God, give us this conviction that church ain't going to work if we don't give ourselves fully to it. Because we want you. So God, may you always find men and women who want you more than anything else. In Jesus' name we pray.